If you could open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12. Uh, again, good afternoon. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, if I haven't seen you in a while, it's good to see you. Um, last week was our five-year anniversary, and I guess we're having that letdown afterwards. Um, but it's cool. All the important people are here and at home as well. So everyone's important. Everyone's equally important. Today we're talking about something from the text. We're continuing our series through 1 Samuel 12, after God's own heart, 1 Samuel. But today we're talking about something from the text that is really near and dear to the heart of God. Today what we're talking about is God and his relationship with us, his people, Now, I know some of you might be visiting, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, but you understand, right? You know, it's church. A lot of people here, they consider themselves Christians. They believe that God is their father, that they know Jesus. And that's who is being addressed in this text, kind of in a different way. But the issues are the same. Because the truth is, some of us, even though we might profess faith in God, even though we might feel like we have a relationship with God, or we should... We're far from him. We're living in sin. We haven't really been thinking about God at all. Lately, this week, we were focused on other things. And even though maybe we haven't done something terrible, maybe we didn't murder somebody in the past few days, we know deep down in our hearts that we haven't been right with God. We haven't been close. Now, we're all sinners, right? I sin every day. It's not that some people here are terrible sinners and there are holy pastors up front who never sin. The question is today, it's not who's a sinner and who's not. It's more, how are you going to deal with your sin? So let's get into it. First Samuel 12. We're going to do the whole chapter, okay? Verses 1 through 25. Let's go. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. 
And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this afternoon. On this Mother's Day, God, it's a celebration for many of us, and we're thankful for all your blessings to us. But God, we come before you right now, before your holy word. And God, your word has hard things to say in it for us. So God, as the text says, I pray, God, that we would stand still or sit still. That we would be enraptured, God, that we would be convicted. God, that we would be attentive to what you have to say in your word. And I pray the same for me. God, I pray that my heart would be humbled before your word this afternoon. Because, God, you are in the heavens. God, you are holy and righteous. You are the judge of the living and the dead. We are guilty before you. We are sinners. So, God, I pray that that truth, that this reality would surround us, God, as we listen that we would remember who you are, that we would remember who we are. And I pray, God, that you would minister to us. God, when we recognize these things, the infinity, the immense distance between you and us, when we think about what you have done for us in your son, there's nothing greater. So God, I pray that right now you would hit us with that, you would magnify your son. All glory to him today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so I was reading this sort of interview thing uh, with these couples, these married couples. There are three of them. And they were talking about these stories that come up in their marriages again and again and again. Right? Maybe the husband loves to tell this one story or the wife loves to tell this one story again and again. And it's kind of a joke in their marriage because the story's been told ad infinitum, right? Like a million times. 
And one of the stories that came up in one of the couple's marriages had to do with uh, what the husband used to do before he was married. So he loves to talk about his single life, his wild single life. And when he was younger, uh, he was actually kind of into um, petty crime. Okay, so nothing crazy, right? Nothing like super illegal, but he liked to kind of test himself. He loved the thrill of it. So he would go into like the supermarket and he would try to steal one onion to see if he can get away with it, you know, stuff like that. And around this time, he moved to London uh, and he was living in England, right? And he met a friend there and his friend was like, hey, let's try to break into the London Zoo after hours. And because he was in his petty criminal phase, he was like, I'm totally down, right? This is exciting for me. So they go to the zoo, it's nighttime, and there's no security at all, so they just jump over the fence and they get in super easily. And so they're walking around the zoo, and I think most of us have been to a zoo before, it's the same thing, right? But it's nighttime, no one's around, and they figure, why not? Why can't I just go into these exhibits with these animals, right? Now, they're not dummy. He's still alive, right? He got married later. He didn't go into the lion's den or anything like that or, or see any dangerous animals, but what he did was he climbed over the little plastic thing, like the barrier that separates humanity from the penguins. Because <laughs> that's what he wanted to see. Uh, he loves penguins. He thought they were so cute. So he went over, and all the penguins are sleeping at night. And he goes over, and he's like, I'm just going to pet one, right, because I'm a man. So he starts petting this penguin, and the penguin jumps up awake and is super angry and bites his hand. So he has to flee. He's, like, running out of there. He's splashing. The cops come. They arrest him. And he loves telling, it takes like 45 minutes to tell this whole story. He loves telling it. And then he shows up at the police station, right? And they're asking him who he is. He has no ID, right? He's smart. He has no ID and nothing. All he has on him is one onion in his pocket. And that's kind of the punchline of the story. And you can tell he loves telling the story. He loves bringing it up. He loves talking about, you know, setting it up with his petty crime and the onions and stuff. He loves talking about penguins, how they've tricked us all, how we all think that they're all cute and friendly and stuff, but actually they're vicious and evil and they bit me. And he loves talking about how he goes to the police station and he's so smart, right? No, no ID except for the single onion, his calling card. He loves telling every single bit of this story. But the funnier thing is his wife who's sitting there, right, who's heard the story at least 20-something times in its entirety, she's so sick of this story. She's like, yeah, I remember when the, that pig, like, licked your ear, and he's like, that didn't, it was a penguin that bit my hand. She's like, whatever. Like, I, I, I don't care about this story. So the interviewer, though, he's interested in the, the dynamics between their marriage, the relationship, and he's like, so you don't even listen to the story anymore. And she says, yeah, I mean, the truth is, I don't. Right? He gets into it, he starts talking, and I just tune out. I zone out. I don't even, I don't even remember the details on purpose. And that's the sad irony I was thinking about when I was reading this, of these kind of things. People, they repeat themselves over and over. They tell the same stories. They give the same advice. They tell their kids the same lessons. Why? Because it's so important to them, right? At the most basic level, that's why it's meaningful to them. They want to pass it on. They enjoy telling it. They think it's important. They want to give. But on the other hand, the people who hear the same things, whether it's a tired spouse or it's kids or whoever, the people who hear the same story or the same lesson or the same advice, they get tired of it. And it's sad and it's ironic because there's kind of like an inverse relationship. The more important it is to one person, the more they talk about it. 
But then the other person, the more the person talks about it, the less and less they listen. Wives tune out husbands, husbands tune out wives, players tune out coaches, children tune out parents, and congregants tune out pastors. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to shame you guys for zoning out when I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to. But it is what we're going to be talking about in a sense, because here's the thing about church, okay? And I think you all know this if you've been around church for even a little while. If the pastor preaches the Bible or preaches sound doctrine, right? And he's doing it every week and you're showing up every single week. And if he actually cares about the things that he talks about and he cares about you, he's going to be repeating himself a lot, a lot, saying the same things again and again and again. And that's the way it should be. The pastor should be talking about the most important things from the word of God, and he should be talking about them over and over and over. The problem is on the other side, and I know because I was just a regular Christian congregant before I was a pastor, it can get tiresome. You kind of know what the pastor is going to say. Maybe he even says it in the same way. And when he starts launching into it, he's like, you know, the thing about sin. And you're like, okay, I already know what he's going to say. He said it 70 times, seven times. I know. So you tune out, you zone out. You're looking for something else, a little variety. Sin again, relationship with God again. Jesus died on a cross, heard it a billion times. Now, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of variety. Okay, I like it too. It's the spice of life, as they say. Spice of Zoe, for those of you who are in the know. But the issue today is, what do we do when we hear the same things? And not just from the pastor, but from the Bible. Because the Bible can be a repetitive book. I've told you guys before, uh, this is kind of meta here, I told this before, but I told you guys before about this one guy who became a Christian and he read Matthew and he's like, oh, that's what Jesus is about. And then he turned the page to Mark and he's like, I'm going to find out more. And he's like, wait, this is the same story. And then he turned the page again to Luke and he's like, wait, this is the same story. The Bible can be repetitive. So what do we do when we hear the same truths again and again and again? See, we come to a passage in 1 Samuel 12. If you haven't been here, hopefully I can kind of bring you up to speed. But if you have been here, uh, we're in 1 Samuel 12. We've been in this book for a few months now. Uh, and this passage, if you look, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see in the heading, it says Samuel's farewell address. Do you see that? Uh, and maybe in other translations too, I don't know. Um, but that's what theologians call this passage, Samuel's farewell address. And it's a little misleading because Samuel doesn't actually go anywhere. He doesn't die after this. He doesn't stop being a prophet. The reason it's called this is because he's passing the mantle of leader of Israel to King Saul. So the only thing that really changes is he's no longer going to be a judge. The age of the judges is over. Now it's the age of kings in Israel. It's the monarchy. So Samuel is passing it. It's kind of like the way I think about it is when a president leaves the White House to make way for the new president, he gives kind of his final remarks. That's what it is. Okay, the last time he's speaking as the leader of Israel This is what he wants to say. So he gives his final words, but guess what he decides to talk about? The same thing he's been talking about the past few chapters. I remember thinking about this, and James was already alluding to 1 Samuel 12, and I'm like, hey, you're stealing my thunder, man. Like, what am I going to talk about when we get to 1 Samuel 12? Because we already hit on all of these themes, all of these ideas. But the reason why is because Samuel has been beating the same drum. He said, you want a king? That's a mistake. You want a king, that is sin. That is wrong. 
you want a king, it's not going to end well for you. This is the third time he's brought it up at length. The same thing. He has one last opportunity to talk to Israel. He repeats the same old thing. But as we get into it, we'll see that this isn't pointless repetition. This actually teaches us something about how God works. Samuel is a prophet. He's bringing the word of God, not just the word of Samuel. So this teaches us how God works, how he doesn't repeat himself because he lacks self-awareness, because he forgot what he just said yesterday. He actually repeats himself out of love for us in the sake of his own glory. And there's kind of a meta lesson in here. And hopefully you'll see what I mean in a minute. But let's get into it. We'll look at this text in three parts, as we always do. First, the realness, or the relationship, excuse me, the rebuke and the return. Okay, the relationship, the rebuke, and the return. First, the relationship, the relationship. Samuel is going to rebuke them again. We read the text. He's going to bring up the mistake, the sin of asking for a king again. But this time he starts by bringing up their relationship first. You notice that? Look at verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. And it kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. It's only been 12 chapters, but many, many years have passed. Okay, and if you've been with us since day one, you know that we were introduced to Samuel literally from conception. Even before, we were introduced to his parents. Remember Hannah? And remember Elkanah, Hannah, she was barren. She wanted a child. She prayed to God, and God gave her Samuel. He was the child of promise. He was a child, he was a gift, a child of grace. But once she received him, she had given him back to the Lord. And Samuel, when we first were introduced to him in particular, he was a little kid. He was just weaned. He was like three years old, and he's serving in the temple with Eli. He's wearing that little robe. It's pretty cute. But time has flown by. Life has been hard for Samuel. Samuel has been serving literally since when he could walk. He's been walking before them and before God until this day. And now Samuel's an old man. He's an old guy. A good chunk of Israel had never known another leader besides Samuel. Samuel had never taken a sabbatical or a vacation. Samuel was a prophet, a servant of God this whole time in public. So what does this mean? It means, I think if you really take some time to think about it, it means that he's had a lot of time to make some enemies in Israel, to mess up a little bit. I mean, again, if you guys have been around church for even a little bit of time, you know that pastors mess up all the time. Church leaders mess up all the time. There are almost, I've never been to a church where there wasn't at least someone who had some kind of beef with one of the leaders. So Samuel... He's here. He's been the judge of Israel. He brings up his sons. He doesn't hide them. We learned a couple chapters ago that they had taken bribes, so they're not perfect. What skeletons might be in Samuel's closet? He shows up, and he starts off by inviting a challenge. Verse 3, if you look. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. It's a challenge. It's an affirmation of his integrity. 
But notice how Samuel words it. I think he's being real here. He says, just tell me and I'll make it. uh, This is the end for me. But if I wronged any of you, let's just make it right right now. He's not just making a point. He's actually trying to make restitution if he needs to. He knows God knows everything. He knows God is watching. And they say in verse 4, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Okay, this is totally different than I've been a great leader. You guys haven't appreciated me enough. This is them saying, you know what? You were a good leader. Not perfect. No one's perfect. But he never took advantage of his position, never took bribes. He didn't wrong anyone. It's pretty impressive. And just to make sure, Samuel brings up the Lord again in verse 5. He says, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. That's Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. They said, before God, we can say that you have never wronged us. Now, why does Samuel bring this up? What's the point of all of this? I mean, yeah, it's great that Samuel was a good leader. That's cool. But why does he bring it up? Well, here's the thing, okay? This is kind of setting it up. But we can't divorce what is happening right here in the text with what has just happened in chapter 11. Now, I know it's been a couple weeks. We had our anniversary. We took a break from this. But right before this, and chronologically, this is right before this, King Nahash of the Ammonites had besieged the city called Jabesh Gilead. Do you guys remember this? It's a small city, and he was a powerful king. He had a strong army, and he said, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to basically take over, and I'm going to cut out all of your right eyes. And they were like, no, we don't want that. Can we ask for help? And he said, sure, because I know no one's going to help you. So they asked for help in all Israel. And Saul, who hasn't been doing any kingly stuff yet, uh, he hears about their plight, and the Spirit of God rushes upon him like a new Samson, and he mobilizes all of Israel, and he gathers everyone, and they defeat Nahash, and he saves the right eyes and the lives of all these people. That's what just happened. And everyone was super happy, and, and everyone was rejoicing because now they had a king. And if you think about the flow of the narrative, Samuel had been saying, okay, if you get a king, it's going to be bad. If you get a king, God's not pleased. If you get a king, let me just warn you. And then they have this king, and it's awesome. They have this king, and he actually uh, uh, makes salvation for these people. It's going pretty well. And now Samuel is going to warn them again after it looks like all of the warnings weren't real. You see what I'm saying? He's going to rebuke them for asking for a king. He's going to say, you still sinned in asking for a king, and God is still not pleased with that, even though right now it's like having a king is the greatest thing since unleavened bread, sliced bread. Why does he do this? If we put it all together, why does he do this? Because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. He says what needs to be said because he knows the people need to hear it. It's not about him. That's why he brings up his own leadership because he's saying, look, I'm just trying to do what's right. I've always been trying to do what's right. I've never been about me taking bribes, trying to oppress people, trying to defraud people. Being the leader of Israel was never about me. Hopefully my life preaches that message. When did I ever do anything for dishonest gain? I'm going to rain on this parade a little bit, but it's not because of sour grapes. It's not because I'm jealous of Saul. It's not because, you know, I'm just bitter that my warnings were unheeded. I'm saying this because it's the truth. See, that's the power of an honest life. That's the power of having integrity. 
That's why hypocrisy is so bad, because when you say, no, this is really serious, and you haven't been living like it's serious, then there's no way to it. But when you do have integrity, when the person knows that you're for real, when they know that you actually care, that's when there's power. You know, I heard this pastor share once about how he went on sabbatical. It's not Eric. I know it sounds like I'm just talking about Eric right in front of his face. I do that many times. Like my friend in like half my sermons is actually Eric. Um, so I have this pastor friend, uh, just came back last week from sabbatical. No, uh, he uh, went on sabbatical years ago. He's not really my friend, more my acquaintance. Um, but he was getting really burnt out in church. He had started this church and he had been going full throttle for years. It had been like seven, eight years. He was getting really burnt out. So some of his pastor friends and some of his um, other church leaders in the church, they said, why don't you take a break for a little bit? Just focus on you and God. Okay, that'll serve us. That'll be good for you. And they said, why don't you spend time in the word? Okay, put off your house projects. Don't like read these like theological books. Just read the word, pray, and journal. And he was like, dude, I love praying. I love reading the word, but I hate journaling. But they said, do it. Okay, just do it. You got to reflect a little bit. So they gave him a journal, and he started journaling for a few months. And at the end of it, he was reading over his own journal. And he was a very successful pastor, kind of in the world's eyes, in the metrics. The church had grown a lot. Things were going really well. But when he read the journal, he realized that he had been trusting so much in his gifting and in his abilities. Like he kind of realized just in what he reflected on that people had come to church maybe because he was good with people or because he was a good preacher. But then he realized his, his character was lacking. That his inner life wasn't as good as his outer life, in other words. And he was like, you know what? I need to ask my wife about this. So he went to his wife, and in his own words, she's the sweetest thing on planet Earth. I beg to differ. Christine is, right, obviously. Um, not his wife. Who's his wife? Just kidding. Uh, his wife is sweet, I guess, um, but he was like, this is what I've been processing. Okay, I feel like I'm actually not that godly. What do you think? Is this true? And he said, she just looked at him and was like, yes, it is. <laughs> You're not that godly. <laughs> That's it, right? And he had been kind of in denial until that point. I think people had tried to correct him until that point, but it wasn't until Okay, it was the journaling maybe, but it wasn't until his wife, that was kind of the nail in the coffin, until his wife said, this is true. Someone he deeply respected and knew loved him. Until she said it, did he change? Because it's usually not just the message that matters, but the messenger. Again, it's why hypocrisy is such a big deal. It's why practicing what we preach is such a big deal. And it's why... Sometimes you can hear the exact same thing from one person and completely reject it. You can be in denial, you can be defensive, but then you hear it from someone else and it clicks, right? Do you recognize this in your own life? Or let me ask it this way. Are there certain people where you just know they love you so much that you could hear anything from them? Have you opened yourself up to that at all? Have you seen things kind of with that objective reality? Right, because we know sometimes that there are haters out there or whatever, people who are just haters for no reason, people who are critics, but we also know that there are people who deeply care about us and want what's best for us. When you speak hard truths to people, is it coming from a place of integrity? Is it coming from, uh, in the context of a good, solid relationship with that person? Do they know you love them? 
When you have corrected people or rebuked them in church, when you've corrected your kids, has it come from a place of love? Or did it come from a place of annoyance or self-righteousness? I mean, you guys know me, right? You know I have a ton of stories about getting rebuked. I don't know why it is. I guess my spiritual gift is just being rebukable or something. I have so, I have so many more in the vault, too, that I'll bring out later about when people corrected me. And it was the times that I knew that person really loved me and wanted what was best for me that I took the honest, difficult truth a lot better. Do you recognize this in your own life? And do you listen when people truly bring up concerns to you? Because some of us take correction from no one. I know it's the case, no matter the intention. If the message isn't what we want to hear, it doesn't matter who the messenger is. It could be God himself in his word. It could be a person who's done nothing but serve you and love you and care for you your whole life. Do you want to hear it? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27 says. And that's what Samuel is doing here. It's not just about his integrity, but it's about his care. He says, as a leader, when have I ever hurt you? Because I'm about to say something that's painful. My final words are not going to be, awesome job, guys. I love serving here. Real friends, real friends will tell you the truth. They'll say, you're kind of a selfish person. They'll tell you that you're bitter, that you complain a lot. That's why a lot of your burn, uh, bridges have been burned. They'll tell you that you're lazy. They'll tell you that you're not a man or woman of your word. That's why no one trusts you. They'll tell you that you don't reach out to anyone, so why would you expect anyone to reach out to you? These are the hard, some of the hardest things in the world to hear. But real friends will tell you the truth because they love you. And this leads to the second point. The second point, the rebuke. Samuel says, when have I ever done anything just to hurt you? And they say, never, never. And he says, okay, because I got something to say. I got something to say. Verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. He goes back to the Exodus first. Okay, so even here, he's still setting it up. And he goes on to talk about in verse 7, the righteous deeds that God did on their nation's behalf. And in verse 8, how God freed them and brought them to a land of their own. What is he doing? Why this history lesson? Samuel is setting this rebuke in the context of God's covenant relationship with his people. It's not just about Samuel's relationship with them. It's about God's relationship with them. When God said at this point, I will be your God, you will be my people. And see, here's the thing, okay? On the one hand, this makes it a little bit softer. Okay, it's not just you did a wrong thing, it's wrong. It's about how God cares about having a relationship with you. But on the other hand, this makes it way more serious. You didn't just mess up in the small way. You actually damaged this relationship with God. Because if you look at verse 9, he's going through the history. He's kind of building up to this point in time. He says, uh, the people were brought into the promised land, verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. See, this is a tale as old as time as far as Israel's concerned. Even from the beginning, they turned away from God. So what did God do? He allowed them to be oppressed. He let them go off on their own to see what life without him would be like. And of course, it was terrible. So God delivered them. Right? It was terrible. They cried out for deliverance. God delivered them. They were doing good for a little bit. And then the cycle repeated itself again. They forgot God. And then God allowed them to go off on their own way. And then it was terrible. 
et cetera, et cetera. Verse 12, all the way to the present day. And when you, this is just like a few weeks, a few days before this. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God was your king. Okay, so now we're learning exactly what happened in detail. It wasn't random that they asked for a king. It was because of Nahash. It was the same cycle. God had allowed them to reap what they sow. Nahash had showed up, but instead of returning to them, uh, to God, instead of them returning to God this time, they turn to a different king. They want to go a different way. They actively choose to reject the Lord their God. Now, what is Samuel doing here? He said asking for a king was bad. He already brought that up. He had already said that asking for a king won't go well, but here he just lays it out. He says, when you wanted a king, when you turned to a human king, instead of turning to God, what you did was you rejected God. You rejected him. You pushed him away. It's not just a mistake. It's not just breaking rules. It's not just doing bad stuff. It's about separating yourself from the God that you claim to worship. You know, if you think about, if you think about sin, this is what it is at its heart. Right, go back to the very first sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, eating a piece of fruit is not exactly the worst thing in the world on the surface. Okay, a lot of you guys ate fruit this morning. It was fine, right? Maybe a little bit too much sucrose or whatever, but it was fine. The reason why Eve and Adam eating the fruit was wrong is because God had told them not to do it. God had said, you can have anything you want. Just don't do this one thing. And they did that one thing. Why? If you read the text again, you see it's because they wanted to be like God. They didn't want God to tell them what to do. They didn't want God to be their God. They wanted to be their own God. And this is the essence of sin. You're not the God of me. I'm actually the God of me. And every time we do any sin, that's what we're doing. Anytime we disobey the word in any single way, that's what we're doing. Anytime I complain when the Bible says, don't complain, I'm saying, you know what? I know you say that, God, but let me finish. I'm going to do what I want to do. Asking for a king wasn't sinful in of itself. It was the heart behind it. It said they wanted to be like other nations. What made them different than other nations? It was that they had the God of their universe, of the universe as their king. But they didn't want that. They wanted to have a real, quote-unquote, human king, just like every other country. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want God. See, sin is rejecting God. Maybe you've heard this a million times. But sin is rejecting God. You know, at our old church, Lighthouse, the church that planted Zoe five years ago, um, I used to serve as a volunteer in the youth ministry. Uh, and back then, it was really small. Lighthouse is a huge church now. There's like hundred something kids in the youth ministry. But back then, there was like one kid in the junior high age. His name was Justin. That's his real name. And he was, he's a sweet kid. He still is a, I mean, he's an adult now. Um, but uh, he's a sweet guy. Um, but he invited so many friends to church. Like, it was crazy. He was like the only junior hire, so he invited like every person he could. And all of a sudden, there were like 20 kids. He was just an evangelist for the gospel and for church. He brought people from school, just random people. Uh, and after a while, we had kind of this like pretty good youth group. And it was really encouraging. A lot of the kids seemed to really like it. And they were learning about God and the Bible. But I saw them from like sixth grade all the way to like adulthood. And the thing is, a lot of them just fell away. 
And it's sad, you know, I think about it sometimes, those old days. There's, I still see some pictures of our old youth group, and I see these kids, and they're like in their 20s now, and it's kind of sad to look at. Some of them are still walking with God, but it was all different reasons when I look at the picture. Some of the kids, they just got into, you know, like worldly stuff, you know, like they got into drinking or smoking marijuana or something. It's California, you know, it's different out there. Some of them, they just got really into school, and they really wanted to be successful, get into college, so they just stopped coming to church, stopped being into God. They had to focus on their own thing. Some of them, it just was a gradual kind of like slipping away from these things about God. Now, on the surface, you could say, you know, some of them, they just got into sin, but that doesn't explain really what was going on among all of them in their hearts. Not all of them were really going after, quote-unquote, bad things or sinful things, things that are frowned upon in church, breaking the rules. But in each of them, you could see that there was a point in their life where they chose me instead of God. Even if it was just, I want to play video games. I don't want to go to church and read the Bible. And going to church doesn't mean that you have a right relationship with God either, but it's the hard choice. What do you actually want inside? It's not about the rules. See, the thing is, at church, we can get hung up on the rules. Make sure you go to church. Make sure you read your Bible. Don't go with girls that smoke and drink and whatever. But we have to understand that the heart behind these instructions isn't legalism. It's covenant relationship with God. If God says he doesn't like it, and we still want to do it, that says something about us. See what I'm saying? I mean, if your best friend says, I really don't like it when you're late all the time and you're saying, I don't care. What kind of friend are you? And I think you guys all know this. You know that sin separates. You know that sin is in the heart. If you've been around church, again, you've heard this. This is where we're tempted to tune out as a congregation. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right? Like relationship with God, you always talk about that. Sin is bad. I know that. Here's the question. Okay? And you can just take this and... Run with it however you want, but here's the question. If you already know it, if you know that sin is bad, why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep doing it? How come you haven't stopped? And why do we justify it? Why do we get annoyed when people try to talk to us about it? I preach to myself. I do. I mean, we all struggle with sin, but I'm just saying if you could get down to the deep level, kind of the root of it, why do you keep on doing it? If you know how bad it is, because it is bad. Verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Okay, so first of all, it's too late to go back with the king thing. They already have a king. We and in the same way, we can't take back what we've done. If you sinned yesterday, if something really bad happened this week, you can't take it back. It's already happened. It's written down in the book. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So he's kind of going to the future now. He says, okay, you got to change. You got to start living in the right way. And this is the old covenant. There is blessing for obedience. There is curse for disobedience. But what about what's already happened? Verse 16. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. 
Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, you need a little context. Harvest, wheat harvest season was like May or June. It's around this time of the year. But in Israel, different climate, it almost never rains around this time. Okay, so to call upon rain would have been a freak occurrence. It was to prove that it was supernatural and different. And they are freaked out because Samuel just says it's going to come and it just shows up. It's a show of God's power and control over nature. And then Samuel ties it in with their wickedness. He says, God sees. He has seen what you've done. He knows your wickedness. See, the point is God is worthy to be feared. He is not just worthy of awe. Okay, that is part of it. James talked about that a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, I forget. But he's also worthy of terror. Right? Jesus himself said in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after they have done nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, The reason why this is brought up so much, the reason why Samuel brings this up again, the reason why I'm talking about it again, telling you to repent of your sins, is because there are consequences. We should be afraid. At the end of our lives, there is death waiting for us, and after death, what does Hebrews 9 say? Judgment. For everything we've done. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but an eternity in hell for our sins. That's the truth. To walk away from God is to walk away from life itself. God isn't bluffing. For our sins, we will face the consequences. I think sometimes we're just fooling around, you know? And I feel like I do too. That's why this passage was convicting. I was telling James, I was like, I don't feel like this sermon came together right. And I think part of it was, this passage was just hard for me, personally. Not to understand, right? To study it was actually pretty straightforward, but just thinking about it. There are many times, uh, here's a story that's not even in the manuscript, but I was talking to our old pastor, and I was like, you know, sometimes I feel like my heart's not right in ministry, you know? Like, I feel like I just do it for myself, Maybe I even got into it for myself. I just liked it, and, you know, I felt like I was pretty good at it early on. Now I know that I'm not, but back then I thought I was. And he was like, yeah, you know, that could be true. And I was like, I I think I should just quit. And he said, well, you could quit if you want. But he said, before you quit, repent. He said, quitting is not going to do anything to change your problems. Maybe it will take away the temptation to sin more later. But he said, you need to repent if that's where your heart was at. So think about this. Okay, before you quit, before you go do anything else, before you try to turn, you know, turn to something good and you're like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to read the book. Before any of that, what's going on in your life right now? What's in your heart? What sin have you committed? What sin are you coddling? What sin are you struggling with? How are you rejecting God? And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What are we as a church going to do about it. God's not messing around. And the reason Samuel says this, the reason why we preach this is because I don't want any of you guys 
to walk away from God thinking that just because you came to church and we did expository preaching or whatever, that you're right with God. It's about your heart before the living God. And I don't want you to show up and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things for you in our lives? And then he'll say, I don't even know who you, we have no relationship. And this leads to the final point, the return. So the relationship kind of establishes kind of a a rapport between Samuel and the people. The rebuke where Samuel lays it out for the people. He says, you are wicked. Chapter or or heading number 3.3, the return. The return. So far, Samuel said all this stuff already. Okay, he's already called them out. Maybe the lightning is new. But the content of what he said, he's already said. And you've probably heard exhortations like this a million times. Repent of your sin. Examine your heart. See if you're really in the faith. And I know that this gets tiresome because I've been in churches where it does get tiresome. Every week, are you really a Christian? It's like, I think I am by this point. Now, the Bible does talk about repetition in a negative light. At least sometimes we can harden our hearts over time. We can sear our consciences over time. But the thing is, every time we hear it, we have an opportunity to repent. Every single time. If, you know, if you look at this text again and you think about it just for a second, you sit with the story. The thunder, the lightning, the rain, it was scary. But how many people got struck by lightning and were killed this time? Zero. Right? It would have said if some people died for their sins... No one was. It was just a warning. And you got to understand, even though it's wrath, it's also mercy and grace. If you're still alive and you're listening to me right now, you haven't had a heart attack in the past 20 minutes, this is grace. God is telling you this through his words so that you have a chance to repent and turn around. That's grace. The scripture says the Lord disciplines those he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. If you feel like God has been reminding you of sin, if you have a friend or a parent who's always calling you out on certain things, always trying to minister to you, you know what I mean? Maybe it's your mom. It was like Augustine's mom, always praying for him all the time. It's so annoying, right? But if you have that, it's God's love for you. Because God doesn't discipline the people that he doesn't love. He just lets them get wrath at the end. See, he brings hardship and fear into the lives of those he seeks to forgive. If you're alive right now, it's not too late to turn. If you're suffering, maybe that's God trying to get your attention. Maybe this is me trying to get your attention, but it's actually God through his word, through me. Verse 19. And the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They turned to God. They turn to God. They ask Samuel to be their intercessor, to be a go-between between them and God, someone who is actually right with God to plead their case, a prophet who is also a priest, who is also their judge and leader. They recognize their sin and their guilt, and not just to ask for a king, but it says all their sins. Notice that? They see it now. I mean, maybe it just took some thunder, some whatever it takes. It happened. They see God's holiness, the kind of holiness that made Isaiah himself say, woe is me. And what does Samuel say? Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And you're like, wait, I feel like, is this a mistranslation of the Hebrew or something? Because it should either say, do not be afraid because it's not really that big of a deal. It wasn't that bad. Or be very afraid because you have done evil. 
But Samuel didn't stutter. It's not a wrong translation. In the Hebrew, it says the same thing. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. How could he say that? How could he say that? What do you think? How does this even make sense in light of God, God, his wrath and his judgment? You know, our old pastor, and this kind of got me thinking about the repetitiveness a little bit, but our old pastor used to always start uh, in his sermon, he would start off this gospel presentation every single Sunday with the same words. So basically, no matter, he would always preach the Bible, but he would always find like one little connection to the gospel, to the good news, the message. And he would always start it the same way. He'd say, God created the world. And I'd be like, okay, I know exactly what he's going to say for the next three minutes. Right? God created the world. He made us to live for him, but we rebelled against him in our sin. And because of our sin, there is judgment. The wages of sin is death. We are on our way to hell, but God sent Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember uh, my eyes would just glaze over <laughs> after a while. Sorry, I'm like, another repetitive thing is like, I'm always messing up with the mic. Um, one of you guys, you were so nice. You're like, you know, we should get Jesse a nicer mic. And Lauren said, it's actually user error. It's nothing to do with the mic. He would always say the gospel, and a lot of us, I think we tune it out because we're like, we already know this. We already know what it means to be a Christian. We know that Jesus died for our sins. But that's exactly the answer. Don't you think it's crazy that we could hear Jesus died for our sins, that someone, that God himself became a human being to die for our sins? And we're like, oh, I already heard that a million times. Next. But that's exactly it. That's how Samuel could say what he said. Even though this is a thousand years before Christ, this is the gospel according to Samuel because it's the same God and he understands who God is and how he works. The same God we should fear is the same God who also says, do not be afraid. And if we see Jesus later, we know more than they did. We see that Jesus is actually the greater Samuel in every way. But we can see a shadow of him in Samuel, a prophet. But Jesus is a prophet who called us to repentance as the very word of God. He was a priest who offered the ultimate sacrifice for our sins himself. And he was the king who came to serve us by dying for our sins. He died the death that we deserve. He bore the wrath we deserve. He did it out of love so that we could be saved. And now he lives to intercede for us. If you were convicted at all for anything going on in your life, praise God that you have Jesus Christ, a Savior who lives to intercede for you. If there's any conviction of sin in your heart today, turn to Christ. That's what this is for. Verse 20. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And we're not going to like break that all down. It's actually pretty straightforward. He just says, turn to God and keep going. You did the right thing. You repented. I'll pray for you. Let's go. It's time to live for God. And if God is for you, then know that God is for you. And Samuel says, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I'm not going to stop trying to minister to you, right? I have to live and answer before God too. Just fear him. Remember the consequences. Remember what he has done for you. 
And the thing is, if you've been with us this, this entire time and you've heard every Samuel message that we preach, you might be like, again? You might be a little cynical. Like, it's not even inspiring anymore, right? They already had revival, like, just a few years ago, and then they ended up here. They've already turned to God a million times. It never led to lasting change that was permanent. What's up with these guys? Well, that's how it works. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, when he started the Protestant Reformation, you know what the first uh, thesis was? I'll read it for you. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, you read the Bible long enough, you're like, it's the same thing, right? You keep falling into sin, and then you turn back to God, and he forgives you, and then you say you're going to do better, and you try for a little while, and you do do better, but then you fall into sin again, and then you got to ask for forgiveness, and then God forgives. That's how it works. All of our lives here on earth, Christian, are supposed to be repentance. We're going to mess up. Turn around. That's what repentance means. Do a 180. Turn back. I'm going to mess up. As a Christian, i got to turn around. You might be living a lie right now. Turn around. You might be uh, struggling with a secret sin that no one knows anything about. Turn around. Maybe you're struggling with an obvious sin that everyone knows about, but everyone's too scared to talk to you about. Turn around. Maybe you're just an annoying guy. Turn around. That's all repentance is. Turning back to God. Turn back to Him. Don't go after the empty things that can't save Don't try to numb your guilt away with whatever you self-medicate with. Don't try to go to a person. Don't double down in your sin or struggles or failures. Go to the tried and true. Repent and return to God. And he'll take you back. We'll close here. So I was reading this interview, right, with that, with those three couples, and uh, one of the couples, not the penguin zoo onion guy, um, but another couple had this story, um, and the wife this time, she loves to tell it, and it's the time she was uh, in New York on Madison Avenue, uh, and she saw Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Um, so this was a little while ago, um, but she saw Jackie Kennedy across the street, um, and they kind of made eye contact, or so she thought, um, but she was they saw each other. Um, and she uh, kind of smiled at Jackie Kennedy. And Jackie Kennedy actually, like, put up her hand and started waving. Okay, started waving to her. And she was like, oh, my gosh. Like, so then she started waving back, right? And they're, like, waving at each other. And then she starts waving, like, more and more. She said she started waving with all her heart, right? Like, this is Jackie Kennedy. So awesome. And then uh, a cab just shows up and then picks her up. And she's like, oh, she was actually uh, waving to the cab. Not to me, right? And. Before you judge that woman, we've all had those where you think that someone's waving to you and you're like, oh, hey, uh," you know, like you just walk away and you move to a different state. That's kind of why we planted Zoe. I was waving to too many people in California. Nah, I'm playing. But it was a funny story. She loves telling it. It's kind of embarrassing, but they get a good laugh out of it. Um, But the funnier thing about this story is that the husband loves it. Okay, unlike the other couple, the husband loves this story. He loves telling it too. And he's told it so many times and he's heard it so many times and he's so into it that he actually inserted himself into the story. He's like, oh, remember that time when we saw Jackie Kennedy? She's like, you weren't there. You know, he's like, yeah, I remember like you were waving and you were so embarrassed and humiliated. And I was like, it's okay, honey. She's like, you weren't there. 
you weren't there. He just heard the story so much and he loved it so much that he, uh, his imagination ran wild and he could see himself and he could see Jackie Kennedy and he got mixed up and he inserted himself into the story. And I was thinking, you know what? That's the way it should be though. Not the delusional part, okay? Not like the funny part, but in the sense that you hear the same stories and you don't tune them out, but you get into them. You get into these stories again and again. When we hear these stories from the word again and again, when we talk about repentance and sin again and again, when we hear God speak of grace and wrath again and again, we shouldn't tune them out. We should actually get more into it because this is the same story for us. Insert yourself in here. And if the Bible is true and these things were written for instructions, it's not for our instruction, it's not hard. It's supposed to be for us. We're not the heroes, of course. But this has relevance for our lives. These aren't dead stories. We are called to stand still before God too. This is God speaking to us. This is God waving to us, if you will. So the question is, what are we going to do? Let's pray together. We haven't done this in a while. You can bow your heads. We haven't done this in a while, but I want to give you a minute. What we used to do at Zoe all the time was we would give you guys a little bit of time to respond to the word personally in prayer before God. And because I think this is so personal, you know, we all struggle with sin. All of us need to repent in different ways. I'm just going to give you guys a minute, give you all a minute to repent before God and really to rest in his grace. Take that conviction and bring it before the Lord. So I'm going to give that to you, and then I'll close this, and then we'll sing one last song. God, we know that you are a holy God, that there is not one sin that has ever been committed that you will not punish. You are just in that way. But God, we also know that you are a gracious and kind God, God who is better than we could ever imagine for ourselves. And God, we know that in Christ, God, in his salvation and forgiveness, in the truth that he bore our sins upon his own body, that we can come before you with boldness, that we can draw near to your throne of grace, knowing that he paid for our sins. God, there is such a great forgiveness that you offer to us. And I pray, God, that we would glory in it. So, God, help us. God, you know our weakness. You know we, we easily tune out truths. We have hard hearts. We can be deaf and blind to what you have to reveal to us. God, we are slow, God, to follow but there's still more grace. So God, we look to you this day. We give ourselves to you. We ask that you will help us for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.